Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. shall not steal. The Eighth Commandment. When something does not belong to us, we may not take it. You shall not steal. Stealing is taking what does not belong to you. Don't do that. In this commandment, we learn that God recognizes the right to personal property. We also learn that God prescribes the status quo. Things are the way they are because God wanted them to be that way. If he wanted you to have that whatever it was, he would have given it to you. Or he would have given you the means to lawfully obtain it. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This commandment teaches us to look to God for provision rather than taking matters into our own hands. Because stealing is defrauding our neighbor. It's robbing him of life. You know, mugging on the street, grand theft, shoplifting, and bank robberies are obvious examples of stealing. There are many other more surreptitious forms of theft, and many of these are widespread in our culture. Deceptive marketing, fine print and contracts, bait and switch scams, Ponzi schemes, and identity theft. Not to speak of thefts that are institutionalized by our government, inflation, market manipulation, and unjust taxation. Now these are all clearly examples of stealing. And most of us would never think in a million years of going there. But here are some that may hit a little closer to home. And I speak of petty theft, stealing pens or various small stuff. Uh, plagiarism, stealing words, thoughts, or ideas. And students especially need to be aware of this. Copyright infringement, copying music, movies, or books off the internet without legal permissions is theft. And finally, stealing time. Procrastination, especially at work, but even for your family. Time is not your own. It belongs to God. And we must submit our time to Him. Now, stealing is a slippery slope. Even small theft is a violation of the commandment and is contrary to God's nature. God wants us to be holy like Him. He's a God who gives and gives generously, not a God who takes what does not belong to Him. Theft is a cancer in society because it denies who God is and breaks down faith and trust in community. But God wants us to be a special people, holy and set apart, 
And Paul gives Christians clear instructions to what that looks like in regards to the Eighth Commandment. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing, please kneel. story of the continuing work of our Lord after the resurrection and the, and the ascension. And the story arc of the book of Acts is a constant repetition of a theme, a gospel theme of death and resurrection. Jesus' rule is being established and the gospel is a declaration of what God is doing and how he establishes his rule. Every step along the way, the faithful declaration of the truth of the gospel causes growth and blessing and peace for the church. Like the parable of the sower. The sower goes out and he, he, he casts the seed and Jesus tells us about the different kinds of soil that the, that, that the, the seed lands on. But most of the seed lands on the good soil and, and, it, and it grows 30, 60, and 100 fold. And, and so we see that sort of being lived out in the gospel. The gospel, the spirit comes at Pentecost, Pentecost and, and thousands come to faith in Jerusalem on that first day, Pentecost. And so, so the, the, the gospel is going out, Christians are going out and spreading the gospel, the apostles, the, uh, the evangelists, uh, Paul is going out and they're spreading the gospel. And at the same time as they're going out and bringing all this peace and growth and blessing to the church, they're, they're, they're spreading the peace of God between man and God. It's going out by sacrifice. The apostles suffer for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus warned that this message, the message of the gospel, repent and believe that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead, and he's seated at the right hand of God and will judge men, but offers free forgiveness of sin. That's the gospel. Simple, cut and dry. Jesus is, the, is God, he died, God raised him from the dead, and now he reigns eternally in heaven, and he offers free forgiveness of sins. If you will repent and turn from your sin and believe on him. That's the gospel. And Jesus warned that this message would set the world on fire. Now, sinners reject God. But God is doing his work despite us, despite sinners. He changes us. And he's brought light and life to men. And he is showing us a new way to live, a new way to be human. We are to become like the new man, like Christ. And the result is a cosmic war. It, it's a deep and thorough antithesis. Antithesis is a big word that means we're on opposite sides. If Jesus and the world, God and sin, opposite sides. And, there's, and, and whenever they come into contact, it's, it's a flashpoint. It's a war. It's a battle. 
And we've been following Paul's story in the establishment of God's kingdom in the book of Acts. Now a key part of this has been the declaration of the gospel to non-Jews, as as Paul has been called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And as we saw last week, this brought him into some conflict within the church. So we, we know that the gospel is about antithesis. It's, it's about conflict. It's about God versus the, the sin. It's about that. But last week we saw that Paul comes to Jerusalem and James and, and the elders, they tell him, Paul, you have a PR problem here in Jerusalem within the church. The zealous Jews within the church, Christians, zealous Christian Jews, think that you are denying Judaism. And so we have conflict within the church. And he's, because he was being accused of opposing Judaism as in itself, or per se. But this is an unjust accusation. Paul was more than willing to be a Jew unto the Jews. He teaches that. And to prove it, he 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 decides to accept James' recommendation. And he's going to do this very pious Jewish act of getting purified in the temple and paying the debt, paying the vows of certain Jews who had taken a vow. He's going to spend a lot of money and time and effort to prove that he was not against the law. So the context of our text this morning is that Paul is defending his Jewishness to the Jerusalem church, the Jews in the Jerusalem church. Now in our text this morning, we're going to see that in the midst of his peacemaking, that's what he's doing, he's deferring to other believers. He's willing to do something that he doesn't feel is salvific. It's not that God says you have to do this in order to be saved, but for the sake of peace within the church, as he's pursuing peace, Paul gets arrested. Paul is seeking peace in the church, and God says, here's the true battlefield. God's going to bring the true antithesis to light. The problem with peacemaking is that sometimes you get caught in the crossfire. The problem with peacemaking is sometimes you get caught in the crossfire. Paul's going out to make peace between the Jews, the Jewish Jews in the church, and, 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 and blessing, blessing James and the, the elders' ability to minister to the Jews as a nation. And as he goes to do this, he gets arrested. Now, peacemaking, sometimes you get caught in the crossfire, but that does not negate the truth of the blessing of peacemaking. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed is Paul for making peace. Even if you get caught in the crossfire, you're blessed. In all of his trials, Paul never loses faith. He's stalwart. He's grounded. He's he's committed. And and this stalwartness is not conditional. It's not like, well, as long as things are going along all right, then I'll believe and then I'll proclaim. No, it's all the time, everywhere. 
Remember his declaration when he was on the way to Jerusalem and the prophecies are being made. You're, you're going to be bound. You're going to suffer. If you go to Jerusalem and, and, and the saints that were with him were begging him and crying and weeping and just begging, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, you're breaking my heart. But I am ready not only to suffer, but even to die for the sake of the gospel in Jerusalem. As we shall see in the coming weeks, these sufferings of Paul in his peacemaking are entirely in accord with God's plan, God's purposes. And they serve as a vehicle to further the cause of the gospel of Christ. But today we get to focus on the issue of suffering for the sake of righteousness. The issue of the problem with peacemaking. Our text starts with the accusation against Paul. Paul's in the temple. Start with Acts 21, verse 26. And this is where Paul was submitting to James's instruction. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So Paul gets accused. This is the accusation against Paul. He gets seen. He's observed by Jews from Asia. Now these Jews from Asia were some of Paul's old enemies. They knew Paul. They recognized him. This is the man we've been telling you about. This is the guy who's a rabble-rouser. Now, we, we know that Paul had issues with the, with the Jews in Asia. Paul had issues with the Jews everywhere he went. But this is what Paul says about his interaction with the Jews in Asia. In Acts 20, verse 19, uh, Paul's giving the sermon to the Ephesian elders, where he had lived for three years with them, and this is what he says. You know me. And, it, and this is what I was like. He says, I was serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. The Jews in Asia. So... These Jews, Paul's old enemies, see him, and they recognize Trophimus, the Ephesian. They, they, they were familiar with Paul's traveling companion. So, uh, so, so they, they see Paul, and they just, wham, accusation. Now, um, we know, as we've, we've, we've followed Paul on his, his, his missionary journeys, and we know what drives the Jewish opposition to Paul on the mission field. And it's not what they're saying. It's not that he's against the law and this holy place and against the people. He's not. The first place he goes to bring the Gospels to the synagogue, to the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. 
But his suffering, what we've seen as we study through the, the, the missionary journeys, that Paul's suffering at the hands of the Jews among the Gentiles was driven by jealousy. They, they want to hear more. They want to hear more until they see that the gospel is being embraced by Gentiles. And that's when they, they get jealous and they start opposing. They, they harden their hearts against God. And so they get jealous, and they, because when they saw God's blessing on Paul's ministry, they hated Paul for it. Now the accusation they bring against Paul is twofold, and it's designed to stir up the mob. The first, it was, it, the first part of it was just completely un- unprovable. It, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's too indefinite to hold any legal grounding or any legal footing. They say, help! He teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this holy place. All men. I mean, whenever you start accusations with absolutes, you are not pursuing peace. When you, say, when you start a, a discussion... And you think you're trying to make peace, but, but you're saying things like always or never. You're not really trying. Nobody always or never does whatever it is. He says, oh, he teaches all men everywhere. Against the people, the law, and this holy place. And that's not what he's done. So it's too indefinite to hold any grounds. Uh, in, in an, an interesting way, it was an uh, expansion of the accusation that was used against Stephen. Back in chapter 6, when we were introduced to Paul, when he was attacking Stephen, the accusation against Stephen was this. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And Stephen goes on to defend himself. But this is an expansion of that. So Stephen wouldn't stop speaking about this place and the law. This expansion is, he's telling everybody everywhere against the law and against the people and against this place. This must have been a little kind of reverse deja vu for Paul. Whoa, Jerusalem, whoa, same accusation. The second part of the accusation, so the first one they got is very broad. It's just indefinable. The second part of the accusation, when it got specific, was based on assumption and false facts, which could be clearly demonstrated. But... They were, the, the, the accusation is, is intended to stir up the mob. Remember last week I was talking about, about the, the zeitgeist or the, the culture, the, the, the context of these things. They're, they're living in a very zealous time. A bunch of Jews that were very zealous for the law, uh, very nationalistic. They were trying to, to, to bring on the Messi- messianic reign. They wanted the reign of David and Solomon reestablished. And so they, they wanted Israel as a nation to re, re, rebel against Rome and to take its own leadership. And, and so these people, and, and they believed the way to do that was to get the Pharisaic way, was to get it right. 
We needed to be holy. We need to be holier than we are. We need to be more righteous. We need to do. We need to make more laws because the reason God's not blessing us is because we're not being nitpicky enough. And we are. We have profaned the, this place. We have profaned God. And so we need to. And by on, on their own steam, they are going to. Gosh darn it! We're going to do this. And. Then, in that context, the accusation made by the Asian Jews was that he brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this place. What we know about what Paul did was that he was in the temple and he was purified in the temple. He was following the law. He was doing the law. Nonetheless, given the political climate, this combination was an excellent way to stir up a mob. And if God hadn't intervened, Paul wouldn't have lasted long. Verses 30 to 36. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, this is interesting, by the way. I mean, they're concerned because they need to, to purify the temple, keep it holy. They, they go in, he's defiled the temple, drag him out of there and shut the doors. Who's the temple? Paul has the Holy Spirit inside of him. And they've rejected this. They've rejected the gospel. Let's go on. So they, they slam the doors shut. And uh, immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! In the exact same words they cried out against Jesus Christ. The Asian Jews were very successful in stirring up a mob that wanted to kill Paul. But God delivered him. God, God delivered Paul. Now, again, there's more context here. There, this was during the Feast of Pentecost. There was, Jerusalem was full of people, and the Romans were a little nervous. They, 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 they were all about rule and order. They didn't like mobs. And so they, they had Roman soldiers near and on hand. There was a tower right on the temple complex. And there was a garrison of soldiers there. And uh, they were, they were, God was, God was sovereign. God was in control and he saved Paul. Because it wasn't, they weren't necessarily Johnny on the spot when it came to going to rescue or to stop riots all the time. But this time, immediately they heard, immediately they responded. And as soon as Paul was dragged out, seized and being beaten and would have been killed, they ran down and, and stopped the mob. And, and the mob, again, it was clear 
The mob did not have justifiable cause. They couldn't, they weren't, they didn't even know why he was, the, the commander's trying to find out what he did wrong, and he's hearing different accusations. He's, he can't make sense of it. It doesn't stop them from being murderous. They, they continue to pursue him. And the soldiers had to lift him up over their heads so that they, the, 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 the mob couldn't kill him while they were, while he was in custody. And then, and Paul uh, recognized God's hand in this. Paul recognized God's hand in this. And we know this because when Paul was giving his defense before King Agrippa, which is coming up in a couple chapters, he says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand. He's like, when they attacked me, and they, were, they would have killed me, but I obtained help from God. That's why I'm still here. So God helped them. And the next several chapters of the book of Acts have to do with Paul's defense against the accusations brought against him. And so we're going to get into that in the next several weeks. But suffice it to say that ironically, Paul was in the very act of refuting the accusations brought against him when he was attacked, when he was mocked. They are accusing him of speaking against the Jews, against the temple, against this place, when he was in the act of being purified and paying vows for Nazarites. He was doing the, the, the highest levels of, of, of piety that they could do. But for, So, ironically, that's where he was at when they were attacked. And it does... It, this, this occurrence does more... To separate Christ, the church, from Judaism. Then if Paul had demanded and put his foot down and said, I'm not doing that. Gentiles don't have to be saved that way, so I don't have to go through those things. But no, Paul submits to this act, to this recommended act by James and the elders. And, and by submitting and doing what they ask him to do, bringing peace, attempting to bring peace, he is highlighting the, the vitriol of the Judaic system. When he's attacked in the, in the very act of, of being holy and pure, as, as they were mi mixing it, it brings real clarity to, to, to the antithesis. This is where the problem lies. This is, it, 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 they hate God. That's where the problem lies. Um, so let's let's consider now. So we'll, we'll get into his defense later. Let's consider now some of the, the difficulties around peacemaking. And, and, and sometimes peacemakers get it in the face. It's just the way it is. I mean, we, you don't aim for that. You don't go out saying, oh, "I'm going to try and go get beat up today." That's that's not the goal. And there have been times in, in Christian history. Remarkably, that people aims to get martyred. That, that's not the goal. The goal is to speak truth and proclaim the gospel. Um, it, the, the goal is to bring peace. James and the elders were not at fault for trying to bring peace within the church in Jerusalem. And they did their best to come up with a plan. I mean, it took foresight to have four guys ready to go get their mouths paid when Paul Peace here. So let's let's come up with a way to do this. 
But the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. You can do you can do you can you can make come up with the perfect the perfect plan. But God is God, and He's got the perfect plan. And you if your plan is not God's plan, it will go awry. So James and the others plan to bring peace in the church and establish Paul's Judaism. That, that plan has, has put Paul's life in jeopardy, and it's landed him in jail. Well, that wasn't their plan. It was God's plan, but it wasn't their plan. And at this point in the story, story surely they must be wondering, oh, what, what did we do? <laughs> what just happened here? Surely they, they they must be wondering why why God why are you doing this? I mean this was a good plan. Even many Christian commentators on this this passage think that Paul messed up. Paul, you really messed up on this one. This, this I, I read in a commentary this was the worst mistake that Paul ever made. When he actually submitted to the plan of James and the elders. The commentators, some, some of them think that. And, and they think that this riot and Paul's imprisonment were his just consequences for screwing up. He, he failed to stand up for the, the freedoms of the Gentiles. And he deserves this. And so we should take this as warning. Maybe we shouldn't go around trying to make peace. It, according to these commentators, humanly, from an earthly and fleshly perspective, it sure looks like Paul's in trouble now. Doesn't it? I mean, we, for the rest of the book of Acts, Paul's a prisoner. He looks like he's in a bad spot. Until now, he's been free to come and go. To decide to go and to follow the Spirit's leading, wherever the Spirit leads. He's a free man, Roman citizen. Not anymore. From a human perspective, it looks like now he's shackled. Now he's bound. But there's another perspective. If we go that route, if we look at it this way, like, oh no, Paul's bound now, he's, he's limited. We're looking at the situation upside down. We flipped it on its head. This is not a human or a fleshly story. This is the story of all that Jesus is continuing to do as he sits enthroned in heaven. And that means that this is a, a human spiritual story. It requires a perspective of faith. Now you, you may recall all the other trials we've covered in Acts. Remember this trial of Peter and John, and they were arrested again. Remember, it's the human courts who are being put on trial in Acts. The human courts are being put on trial. The apostle from the out the apostles from the outset of the gospel simply bear witness of what God has done and is continuing to do. And that changes things. Peter and John were arrested because they healed a man in the temple. That's why they were arrested. Paul was arrested because 
because they hated him. Because the gospel was, was, was gaining ground among the Gentiles. But they are not... They are being soldiers in God's battle. They, they recognize the antithesis. But they're not fighting the war that their enemies think that they're fighting. And they're entirely defensible. Because all they're doing is speaking truth. All they're doing is proclaiming what God said and what God has done. Where, where do they go when they, when they defend the gospel? The Bible, the scriptures the law of God. Who do they bring the gospel to? The Jews in the synagogues. It gets them persecuted, but it also brings the power of God. Healings. Speaking in tongues. Peace between man and God. Creation of a community of faithful believers that love God and then are enabled to love each other. So when these men get put on trial, it's the courts that get changed. And we know this from the arc of the story of the book of Acts. Luke is telling a story, and it is obvious, the way Luke's telling the story, that the commentators that I mentioned earlier are wrong. It is obvious that Luke thinks that Paul is the man. He, is, he, he has got it right. He is bringing the truth. And so, and, and you may have noticed that Luke started getting really detailed in the last couple chapters because he's traveling with him. But this is this is the point here. Luke's saying, no, this is the whole goal. Look, look how God's working in all of this. Yeah, sure, Paul's arrested. God's working in this. This arrest does nothing less than give Paul a greater audience. And, and, and we're going to jump right into it next week. The first thing Paul does because of this arrest is he's given a podium on the step right outside of the temple of Jerusalem to a huge crowd of Jews that are zealous for the law. And, and he's going to give them a sermon. And he's going to preach to them that God and the law are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and everything that they're accusing him of is misguided because he is in submission to God and he's going to clearly portray that to them. So he's arrested. It doesn't do anything to harm his, his witness at all. In fact, it just gives him a bigger podium. And from there, he just goes to the rulers of Jerusalem. And then the ruler, then, then the king, King Agrippa, will come, and, and he gets to give the gospel there. And in the meantime, he's, he's ministering to the churches while he's on house arrest. And then he, he gets on a, a boat to go to Rome to spread the gospel there. And he's, 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 he's saved in Malta. He's saved he, the shipwreck. I mean, he's constantly proclaiming the gospel in chains. Arrest does not stop Paul, and Luke doesn't think it hinders him. Now the gospel, God's story, brings resurrection from death. Blessings from suffering. And we saw that with Jesus Christ is the original. We see that with the apostles and we're seeing that with Paul. And Jesus' story is one of ever taking dominion and establishing authority. Peacemaking involves a willingness to deal with the bad and the ugly for the sake of the greater good. 
Peacemakers are sons of God because they reveal God. Think about that. Jesus is the Son of God. And when we look at Jesus, we see God. When we become like Christ in this fashion, we reveal God. We reveal God because we act like Him in peacemaking. Peacemakers are willing to take a hit, to, to get it in the face in order. He was, remember Paul's getting beaten? I'm sure he got hit in the face. In order to accomplish God's purposes. God's, God has a plan, and His plan is perfect, and His plan is peace and life and ultimately love. But in order to get there, we have to do peacemaking God style. We need to do it His way. The gospel is ultimate peace. Jesus comes to set a fire. It's antithesis. But that's peace. If God is God, until things come into alignment with Him, there's no peace. This is the greatest commandment. Peace. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. And after that, we can go to the second greatest commandment, which is peace between man and man. And in a fallen world, this means that the peacemakers are the flashpoints. The point of contact, the point of conflict. So if we look at great examples of the gospel lived out in the scriptures, we see people like Paul, like Jesus, like David, like Noah, like the prophets. And they're flashpoints. Points of conflict between the world and God. If we want to be peacemakers, we must learn to be bold for the sake of the gospel. We may not cower at the thought of confrontation. That would be foolish. Instead, we should wisely expect opposition. Paul wasn't surprised when he encountered opposition. That was, it wasn't like, whoa, where'd this come from? No, he expected it. it. didn't stop him. We should expect opposition because peacemaking means truth-telling. Remember last week I talked about the faith and culture distinction, or the, 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 the intersection of faith and culture? And, and how we can defer to our brethren when it comes to culture, when it comes to uh, cultural things. The deference is a good, Christian deference is good. Be a Jew to Jew, be, be, be a Gentile to a Gentile. You know, by all means, win everyone you can. But never back off on the truth. Never back off on faith. Never back off on Jesus Christ. Always point to Him. Now, peacemakers are the ones who correctly discern the intersection of faith and culture. They understand both that Jesus is supreme, sublime, and sovereign, and that right is relative when it comes to culture. They understand both those things. Jesus is the definition of right. Applying him changes things, but differently in different cultures. The offense that we bring to a situation should always be the offense of the gospel and nothing more.
take out the cultural problems. That, that, that's not, you don't need to add to the, 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 the more. Those, those things aren't part of the problem. The gospel and nothing more. When it comes to culture, be a Jew to the Jews or a Gentile to the Gentiles. But when it comes to faith, Jesus is absolute. Ultimately, peacemaking is about taking away the obstacles to unity. And at the heart of the issue, you always and every time find sin. Peacemaking is about taking away lies. Where does sin come from? The devil. Lying. The cross is always where we go to deal with sin. The cross. And again, the cross is the intersection of culture and faith. This takes wisdom and it requires a heart for discipline because the Great Commission is to disciple the nations. Jesus tells us how we're supposed to do this. We're supposed to go out and disciple the nations. And that means we must discipline. And practically speaking, that means self-discipline and self-sacrifice. The true peacemaker can never be accused of self-service. We must be soft in our hearts to God. We must not be doing what we're doing out of hard hearts or for our own ends. In fact, the peacemaker wears his love on his sleeve. He puts himself in harm's way for the sake of others. And he's willing to take the hit. And as Christians motivated by love for God and for our fellow men, we must not fear the unavoidable hardships associated with bringing the gospel to bear. This means that sometimes we have to do hard things and must not be afraid of that. This means when we see and understand God's truth, we must not refuse to speak it when given the opportunity or the responsibility. It means that we are not pacifists. As peaceful as it might seem to be a pacifist, it's not really, because in the end it's a lie. God's judgment is coming, and if we refuse to declare it, we're guilty of perpetuating it. God's holy and he will judge. And that means we need to declare his grace and his love and change people by proclaiming the gospel. So in other words, deal with sin when you get a chance. When we think of peacemakers, we tend to think of peace talks in the Middle East, right? Those peacemaking, right? Or arbitrators who work to come up with some compromise between two parties who have a difference of opinion on some deal or other. But we can just as viably think of just judges or policemen or of a father spanking his child. That is peace. That's discipline. Discipline brings peace. Parents, discipline your children. Don't postpone speaking truth or holding your kids up to God's standards. That's law. The Bible teaches that if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. It says that God, God shows us what it means to love our children by loving us. He tells us that chase, he, tells, he tells us that the Lord disciplines whom He loves. The Proverbs teach us to be prompt, chasing your son while there's hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. And this is the way to peace, by instructing in truth. 
If you don't teach your children who God is and how to live in His grace and blessing, then you doom them to misery and suffering. And peacemaking has everything to do with the imposition of truth and right on a broken world. But it must be true and it must be right. That's why it has to be the gospel and nothing else. It has to be the cross. You must take away the dross and leave the silver. In order to be successful at peacemaking, you must be humble. Die to yourself. Take the hit and go the extra mile. Like Paul, be ready to suffer and even die for the sake of the gospel. Reject the trappings of sin because the best picture of this is Christ. Perfectly holy, righteous, and just. Bearing our sins on the cross. Making peace between us and God for all eternity. The problem with peacemaking is that it hurts. It's hard to do. And you have to die. But it's worth it in making, because in making peace we become like God. And in that kind of death we receive a new and better life. Resurrection life. Complete with the glory of obedience. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Peacemaking involves blood, sweat, and tears. It always has. And this has been true ever since peace was first broken in the garden. God had to spill blood to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. But God did. He provided a way for us to live in relationship with Him. And that has been made clear to us in His divine revelation in this holy book. God gave us types in the law and the prophets. He's shown us what sin is, how ugly and evil it is, and where it leads. But he didn't leave us there. He gave us a peacemaker, Jesus Christ, as our mediator and the propitiation for our sins. God is reconciling all creation to himself in Jesus. He's remaking the world and remaking us in Christ. Jesus makes us clean and invites us to participate in sweet fellowship and relationship with God. He beckons to us and invites us to eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus for the free forgiveness of your sin. Participate in this meal and participate in his life. Rejoice in this glorious meal and message and then boldly go out to proclaim peace to the world this week. Christ's body, broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.